So we've started this journey together as a church this term. We're asking God to make us a great commission people, people who consistently share the the life-changing good news of Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples and teach them to live according to God's truth. And we're currently in this sermon series called Meals with Jesus. God spoke to us as a church and told us that one of the ways that he was going to make us this Great Commission people was by using us as we practice hospitality, opening up our homes and our lives in ways that seek to make strangers neighbors and neighbors the family of God. Jesus shared meals with all sorts of people, didn't he? Sinners, followers, opponents, friends, enemies. And as he shared meals, he shared himself. He shared the presence of God. He shared grace and he shared truth. And he wants to do that now through you and me as we share our meals and our time with others. We're looking at a story today where Jesus revealed who he was while sharing a simple meal. We're going to read from Luke 24, 13 to 35. You can look it up in your Bible if you've got it with you, or it's going to be on the screens. Before we read, here's the background. So Jesus has just been crucified on Friday, and Saturday has, has passed in a blur of confusion and distress for his followers. And then comes Sunday. Mary Magdalene and some other women, as well as Peter and John, had been to Jesus' tomb and they'd found it empty. Angels told them that Jesus wasn't there, but they didn't didn't know what that meant. So let's read Luke 24, starting at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yeah, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman said, but they did not see him. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were, as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this story where you, you opened the scriptures to these two people on the road to Emmaus 2,000 years ago. And, and we just ask that you would open up your, your word to us today, that you would reveal yourself more and more to us. And as you do that, it would stop us in our tracks. That it would transform us. And Lord, we ask that you would equip us to, to lead other people into encounters with you as we open up our, our lives, our homes to people. Amen. So, this is Jesus' first appearance recorded in Luke's gospel since his resurrection. It's like the climax of the whole story. And who would you have thought he might have chosen to, to honor with this amazing moment? Surely one of the main characters, right? You know, like one of the, the, the big three, Peter, James, or John, or, or, or maybe uh, you'd expect him to go straight to one of the people who just put him to death, maybe Pontius Pilate or Herod or Caiaphas, the high priest, you know, just really put them in their place. But Jesus didn't choose the high profile or the powerful. He chose two disciples that are completely unknown to us outside of this encounter. We know one of them is called Cleopas, and we don't even have a name for the other one. They weren't part of the remaining 11 apostles. They might have been part of the, the 72, the wider group of disciples, but at best, they maybe seemed to be on the fringes of the main group who had all stayed together in Jerusalem, whereas these two had left. They were probably off home to Emmaus. They don't seem to be anything special. But Jesus knew them, and he chose them. And that really encourages me, because I'm nothing special. And maybe it encourages you too. God sees you. The Apostle John in his gospel tells us of another person that the resurrected Jesus chose to appear to before he appeared even to the 11 apostles, Mary Magdalene. Women like Mary were marginalized in her culture, but Jesus chose her, and when he appeared to her, he called her by name. And he knows your name as well. You see, Jesus loves people on the margins who no one else bothers to see or to value. He doesn't pick people out by worldly criteria. Jesus takes people from the fringes, and he brings them into the center of his purposes You know, as we 
reach out to other people in, in hospitality in this season, I think that's really worth bearing in mind. Maybe God's asking you to invite in somebody that you've barely noticed before. Or maybe it's just a really ordinary neighbor who you've had a thousand mundane conversations with. God wants to give many ordinary people encounters with him through you as you practice hospitality. Now, when Jesus first approaches these two disciples, they don't recognize him, which is really hard for us to wrap our heads around, isn't it? Why couldn't they recognize him at first? Well, we don't know exactly. The phrase, their eyes were kept from recognizing, suggests that God was involved somehow, and that is mysterious. You know, we we don't always get to know why God does some things the way he does them. What seems clear is that there's, there's something important about the process that Jesus uses to bring revelation in this story. So we're going to look at that process. How does Jesus choose to show these two disciples the wonderful news of his resurrection? And what can we learn as we share that news with others? I certainly think part of what we're meant to see here is that those who don't yet believe in Jesus have a veil over their eyes. They're blind to the truth that's right in front of them. Revelation of who Jesus is is something that God and only God can bring and in his timing. Now, we can absolutely pray with confidence that he will do that for the people in our lives, our friends, our family, colleagues, strangers we're talking to, people around our meal tables. Something he loves to do, something he does a lot, and he loves involving us in that process of revelation for others. But it is something that he does. So let's look at the process. How does, how does Jesus go about revealing who he is? The first thing Jesus does, as so often, is he asks a question. Just approaches him, hey guys, what are you talking about? I'm going to be honest, that is not how I would have started. You know, the greatest miracle in history has just occurred. The crucified Messiah has just been raised to life. My first word would have been, ta-da! <laughs> not sure there's a word for that in ancient Greek, but the, just Jesus asks a question. He gives these two people time and space to tell him where they're at and where they're at is in the depths of grief and disappointment. They're so emotional that they just, they stop walking. They killed Jesus, Cleopas says. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Subtext, we don't anymore. Because they thought the crucifixion was the end of hope rather than the beginning of hope. In that uh, video we watched, Mary encouraged us to be people who ask questions before we give answers. In the past, I've felt the same pressure that that Mary felt. I've felt that pressure to to have all the answers about Jesus, which kind of ends up with you doing all the talking, trying to get your points across. But we're called to listen well, honoring people by finding out where they're at with God. 
There is a time to speak truth boldly. We'll come to that. But why not follow Jesus' lead and start with a question? When we do that, we, like Jesus, may uncover disappointment and pain that people need healing from. People can be disappointed in God for a whole range of reasons. Maybe life isn't turning out the way they'd hoped, or maybe they're they're experiencing sickness, or they've experienced the loss of a loved one, or maybe they're disappointed in other Christians, or maybe they're disappointed in what they see in the church. You know, nearly every conversation that I've had with unbelievers about Jesus recently has uncovered a story where they or their parents walked away from church at some stage because of disappointment and disillusionment. Sometimes it's sinful things in the lives of leaders that they've seen or or relationships that broke down. There's a whole range of things that can happen. A long time ago when I was a, a kid growing up, my parents went through some really hard stuff in the church they were part of. And thankfully, it did not lead them to walk away from Christianity. It could have. But even that, though it, it didn't result in them you know, abandoning church as, a, as an idea, even that had an impact on me. I was pretty skeptical about church for years and years. And in conversations I've had with friends who aren't walking with God now, I've been really struck how disillusionment with church can be passed down through the generations. People live with a sense of betrayal about things that happened decades ago, maybe not even to them. Now, I don't want to minimize the impact when things go wrong in churches. It breaks God's heart. But I think our passage today sheds light on a tragic irony. On the road to Emmaus, these disciples are walking away from Jerusalem, where Jesus was killed, the scene of their trauma. But they're also walking away from Jerusalem, the scene of the empty tomb, their place of hope. Many have walked away from church because it's been the scene of disappointment, but church is also the only place that they will find true hope and joy You see, as flawed as it often is, the church is still Jesus' chosen bride, his chosen family. He has decided that it is through the church that the whole world will be blessed. There's a tension for sure because the church is made up of people like me and people like you. That means it's imperfect. Mistakes are made and sometimes people do behave in awful, sinful ways. So how can people find that healing that they need? Well, just like in this story, it's by seeing Jesus clearly. Healing comes by encountering him. And he wants to use you. He wants to use his church in that process for others. When we're willing to enter into others' pain, to patiently hear their stories of disappointment and hurt, we're positioning ourselves to point them to the one who can bring hope and restoration we get to play our small part in helping restore some trust in Christians. This Christmas season is a really great opportunity to invite people into your home or to share meals with people. And Christmas is also a really great time to draw alongside other people in their pain and suffering. Because that's exactly what Jesus did at that first Christmas. He left the glory 
and the perfection of heaven and the adoration of the angels that enter into our mess. He came to a dark, dirty stable in a world infected by sin and pain. He became Emmanuel, God with us in everything. He entered in. So let's do that this Christmas. Let's ask questions. Let's meet people where they're at. We are confident that Jesus will not leave them there because the resurrection can transform every disappointment. Start by listening. And then there comes a time to speak. And when it comes time for Jesus to speak, what he does is fascinating. Again, he does a Bible study. A Bible study to end all Bible studies, I bet. God loves to use his word, the Bible, to bring truth to people who don't yet believe. There is power in the word of God. That's why we love things like Pod at King's. Mary spoke about it in the video. Pod is a, it's a series of Bible studies that helps to show people how Jesus can be a firm foundation for their life and how to walk with him. Since we launched it a few years ago, Pod's helped loads of people understand who Jesus really is and what that means for them. It's a great way to introduce people to Jesus. It's available for you to use. In our passage, Jesus shows Cleopas and his companion how the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible, points to him, to Jesus. Moses and the prophets, the phrase that's used, was just a shorthand for the entire Tanakh, which is the Jewish scriptures we now know as the Old Testament. And it's been calculated that Jesus fulfilled at least 300 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, God's anointed one. That's amazing. Love the, the tongue carry brought and the interpretation down brought in worship, which was all about Everything God promises to do, he will do. He is faithful. You know, everything he promised to do through the Messiah, he did through Jesus. These disciples missed it. They had all the information available to them. But they they only believed part of the truth. As first century Jews, they would have almost certainly known all the scriptures that Jesus went through with them really, really well, probably off by heart. But they lacked insight. They knew that the Messiah was going to gloriously deliver God's people from oppression, but they'd missed the need for the Messiah to suffer and die in order to redeem his people. So when it happened, they were lost. Now, these disciples weren't alone in the mistake, The apostles did exactly the same thing, and they really had no excuse, because in Luke 9, Jesus had literally spelled it out for them. He said that he would have to suffer many things, and that he must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and he must be killed, and on the third day, be raised to life. How could they miss it? Well, they were preoccupied with their own expectations of God rather than allowing scripture to shape those expectations. They were focused on what they wanted Jesus to do for them now, namely freedom from Roman rule. So they missed a much greater thing that God was doing for them, freeing them from sin and death forever. 
I think they and many other uh, Israelites like them, many other Jews at the time, had emphasized the bits of scripture that fitted with what they wanted. And we can do the same sometimes. But the whole counsel of God is important. When we just pick and choose the bits of the Bible that we like, we can end up missing the whole point. We must be people who submit ourselves to the word of God and make disciples who do the same thing. When we share the gospel with others, it can be tempting, can't it, to to water it down, make it a little more palatable. Perhaps we shy away from telling people that God's command is to repent, turn away from their old life toward him. It's not very fashionable these days to tell people that Jesus is the only way to salvation or that he wants to be the king of your life rather than just kind of getting squeezed in alongside everything else you're doing. In verse 25, Jesus rebukes them for their reluctance to believe in the truth of Scripture. He says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. As a reminder for us not to slip into the kind of confusing fog that these disciples are in. Jesus stresses the importance of what God has already revealed in his word. One thing I hear a lot in conversations with with, uh, non-Christians that I'm chatting to, it isn't a strong objection to my belief in God. Like a lot of my friends and people I'm chatting to, they're kind of fine with that. They're like, yeah, I have some sort of ill-defined idea of a higher power. That makes loads of sense to me. Like loads of people nowadays, I think increasingly so, are spiritual in a sense. But what they kind of object to and the stumbling block comes is the idea that we can ever really know anything about God, anything specific, at least. Now, of course, we don't know everything about God, but there are some things, the really important things that we can know about God because he has said them in his word for our good. It's so important that we have confidence in these things. Through the Bible, God shows us who he is. And we get to show others. The Bible study hadn't yet fully opened their eyes to the fact that Jesus was standing in front of them, but it certainly got their attention. And they wanted more. They, they didn't understand everything yet, but they, they got enough, I, I think, to know that they had to cling on to this guy and not let him leave. When they reached Emmaus, presumably where they lived, They were desperate for the conversation to continue. Verse 28 says, he acted as if he he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. As I said earlier, revelation of who Jesus is is something that God does. It comes from him. But there is a role that people must play in receiving it. We must invite him in. As Revelation 3.20 says, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The invitation opens the door to revelation. Invitation opens the door to revelation. Verse 30 says, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Finally, 
It's only after they invite him in to join them at the meal table, that place of fellowship, that they finally receive the full revelation of who he is. As they experience his presence, their eyes are opened. Jesus is invited in as a guest. But did you notice he takes on the role of host immediately? He takes the bread and he breaks it. That's the host's job. It's what they do. The same thing happens when we invite Jesus into our hearts. He takes charge of our lives because that's how we were designed to live, because he made us. Just want you to think about what what it looks like for Jesus to be the host in your life. Metaphorically speaking, he, he makes the decisions about when the fancy china gets brought out. Or that food that you were kind of saving for another occasion in the fridge, yeah, he serves it when he wants to. Yeah, he's also the one who now takes it upon himself to ensure that your household has everything it needs. Maybe you had grand plans for, for, to do great stuff for Jesus. And serve him. Work hard for him as he sits there and enjoys it. But it turns out he's the one who's serving you with everything you need and more. Hospitality in the New Testament literally means love of the stranger. And the irony in this passage is that these two people, they thought they were showing hospitality to a stranger when they invited him in. But really it was God extending a welcome to them. He drew near to them. Jesus had just died on the cross, remember, shedding his blood so that these two people and many like them could be transformed from strangers to members of his family. The Apostle Paul describes it like this in Ephesians 2. You were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. When we engage in simple acts of hospitality, loving the stranger, we are reflecting the heart of God, and we're also inviting people to encounter him. If you're a Christian, Jesus lives in you by his Holy Spirit. And if you invite people to to authentically see something of your life through hospitality, you can be confident that they're going to see something of Jesus, the true host. I'm not talking about, you know, an artificially tidy house or extravagant meals, but opening up your life in simple, ordinary ways. As we see throughout the Gospels, and perhaps most powerfully in this story in Luke 24, Jesus, he loves to encounter people through everyday moments like these. Finally, I just want us to look at what happens when people do encounter the living, resurrected Jesus. It changes everything. In the verses we read, 
The disciples recognize Jesus, and then he, he disappears. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. That's another way of saying immediately they got up and went. Everything had just been turned on its head in an instant. You know, by now it's evening. Uh, it's almost certainly pitch black outside. They've got seven miles of dangerous traveling in the night to do to get back to Jerusalem. They'd literally just urged Jesus not to do that, not to keep going in the dark. You get the sense that they didn't even eat the meal that they were about to share with Jesus. It was just like left there on the table as they abandoned it. That morning they had left the other disciples in Jerusalem and they'd walked away in the depths of despair and probably fear in case that somebody maybe recognized them as as the followers of the guy who just got executed. Not an association that you'd want. And yet these two, they no longer care. All that matters is that Jesus is alive and they are bursting to tell people, you can't keep it to yourself. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything because it brings hope into every situation. 1 Corinthians 15 describes Christ's resurrection as the first fruits of many to come, including ours. If death could not hold him, it will not hold us who believe. 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us that no matter what we face in this life, we have a future hope that can never, ever be taken away. It says, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Whatever we face in this life, the hope you have, if you have put your trust in Jesus because of his resurrection, outweighs it all. Jesus' resurrection is the promise and the beginning of the renewal of all things when death and pain and sorrow will be no more. As Jesus sat at the table with the two disciples in Luke 24, he was was foreshadowing some of what that future will be like. In the new creation, we're going to enjoy the presence of God and unbroken fellowship with one another. The new creation is not some disembodied, floating around on clouds, playing harps all day experience. Isaiah 25 speaks of a great feast. that We'll be eating and drinking and experiencing the joy of God with us and the joy of being in community that is uncorrupted with other people. As we show hospitality in the here and now, as we eat and drink with others, as we invite the presence of God to be among us as we share meals and time with people, we get to foreshadow some of what that future will be like, that glorious future that awaits. And we can invite others to be a part of it. So let's respond to God now. I've said a lot of things. Maybe God's just put something particularly on your, on your heart. He's just put his finger on something for you 
that you know you need to respond to this morning. Maybe you need to hear this morning that that God sees you and that he's chosen you. Maybe you've been discounting yourself from, from sharing, you know, being used by God to share the good news of other people because you're just, just, I guess, you feel insignificant. You feel like you don't matter. You feel like you're not a good enough Christian or you're just lacking in that in confidence. But God wants to say that he has chosen you. He is with you. And so you can step into the calling that he's put on your life. Perhaps you're aware this morning, where this is a sensitive one, that you haven't really processed some disappointment with God. And that's you. I want to encourage you to speak to him about that now. He's listening. He loves you. His power is enough to transform your disappointment. And speak to others too. Don't walk away from community. Maybe God's stirring you to help others, to, 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 to move out of that place of disappointment and confusion and blindness, to stepping into the resurrection life that Jesus has won for them. You can ask now for more of God's help as you do that, to make you somebody who listens well, who speaks boldly. Maybe you just, you just know you, you've lacked confidence in the Bible. And maybe you know you've just been shying away from certain things it says or certain truths just for fear of offending. You know, we want to be sensitive and wise as we speak to people, but we also want the Holy Spirit to fill us with confidence in the full gospel, the truth of God's word. And you can ask him now to give you a greater measure of that confidence in his word. Maybe you've you've invited Jesus into your life. You know, you have had that revelation of who he is. It's wonderful. But, But you're still trying to play the role of host. You're you're trying to call all the shots yourself. This morning, you need to get up from that place at the head of the table and move around and invite him to take his rightful place. He's he's the king. Now, for all of us, I I believe God wants to fill us with great excitement at the wonder of his resurrection this morning.